everyone in, in 1920 was a sports announcer. That's what they sounded like back then. You would like walk down the street, you'd say, hello, ma'am, and they'd be like, hello, how are you? How's the toddler doing? And like the, the little baby would be like, wah, 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 you see, wah. <laughs> what a time to be alive. <laughs> Very rarely hear babies with transatlantic accents. <laughs> It's because there was the silent film back then. Otherwise, they would have sounded just like that. <laughs> Everything was in black and white, too. You know, it's just... <laughs> the whole world, yeah. The life only got color in 1968. Everyone knows that. Oui, c'est vrai. Je suis un Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tory. I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict of crack cocaine. Welcome back to Histories and Mysteries. I'm Jessica. I'm Steel Janelle, and I plug my microphone incorrectly. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to sell me out to the audience. <laughs> yes, I do. You don't have to indicate to the world that we were delayed by a good five minutes because I couldn't figure out why my microphone wasn't working, and it turns out I didn't plug in the other end. <laughs> I'm no technician, Jessica, but I think uh, it's recommended. I I, I, I don't want to judge, but I am judging. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm here for. It's the role I play on this podcast and in your life. I try so hard. I spend all morning slaving over a hot microphone, and then you just have to bust it and say, like, oh, by the way, that's not plugged in. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't have even told you. I should have said it was something else that was... That was that was more 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 defensible. A hundred percent. You should have claimed that your cat was eating it or something. You should have you should have picked a different reason. Oh, um, whoops. <laughs> but we're here now, and we're ready for uh, part two of last week's episode. Mister Roscoe Arbuckle. Roscoe quote fatty unquote Arbuckle. One of the most famous silent. Uh, I was going to say Silent Hill comedians. That's not no. <laughs> No, those that's not what that is. They don't have those. <laughs> Silent Hill is not known for its comedy. Uh like Charlie Chaplin would have been so different if he just had like a giant pyramid head. <laughs> really would have taken away, I think, a little bit from the act. Um, <laughs> the pyramid head, the giant knife, the stabbing, yeah, all of that. So it would have it would have uh it would have taken away a little something from the classics of Charlie Chaplin. Uh, Roscoe Arbuckle was a silent film comedian. <laughs> uh, I I want to see like what kind of haunted monstrosities that 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 the haunted seaside town uses to torment Roscoe Arbuckle. It's just fucking like <laughs> sentient meals of like mayonnaise and artichokes, you know, chasing after him, skittering around. <laughs> I mean, Silent Hill haven't made a game in a while. Maybe that's the idea they need to kickstart them. Um, that's free. They can have that one. <laughs> I, I, I'm not claiming copyright. You go for it. Well, yeah, so Roscoe Arbuckle was a famous silent film comedian who had his career derailed by one of the first major scandals in Hollywood history. On Saturday, September 3rd, 1921, which was Labor Day weekend, Arbuckle decided to take a break from his film schedule and drive up to San Francisco for the weekend with two of his actor buddies, 
Lowell Sherman and Fred Fishback. <laughs> we touched on this Fred. in the first part, but it's kind of incredible how many names in this story have straight up gone extinct in the past hundred years. I have not met a lot of Lowells in my time. Fred Fishback. Fred Fishback. It, I don't know. It sounds like an NPC character in an L.A. noir video game. <laughs> oh yeah, it's Fred Fishback. He's known all around town <laughs> for stealing from the local seafood restaurants. All you can do is like a mid-20th century Brooklyn accent. That is. Hey, I can also do a scary German voice. <laughs> and Queen Elizabeth. Those are the three accents you have in your repertoire. I don't have an <laughs> accent for Queen Elizabeth. Just an unending lust. <laughs> oh, that's worse. That's worse in every imaginable way. No, that's true. I forgot. I knew there was something... You had a comedy act related to uh, Queen Elizabeth. I forgot. It's not the accent. It's insatiable carnal lust. <laughs> no, it's Winston Churchill you have. Yes, it is. <laughs> An accent that I have personally heard you use to sexualize Queen Victoria. So, you know. I have a type. And that type is Queens of England. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tough dating, <laughs> tough dating world for you. It's limited, but, like, you have to have standards. <laughs> know your worth, Jessica. Refuse to compromise. They, they don't have a Tinder for that, by the way. They don't. There's no app. They're specifically dating octogenarian ro- royalty. <laughs> Just Queen Victoria. <laughs> Margaret of Denmark, call me. <laughs> but yeah, although this, this whole event took place at the height of Prohibition... It really wasn't difficult for a man making a million dollars a year to get his hands on booze. Um, And they intended to have quite a lot of it. I mean, it wasn't that hard for anyone to get their hands on booze. No, it really wasn't. It was more inconvenient than anything else. Anything that you can make with spoiled corn in a garage is not... You're never going to really ban that efficiently. I, I once heard of this agent who, like, went around to different cities timing how long it took him to find alcohol. And, like, the shortest was New Orleans when he, like, steps into a taxi, asks where he can find some alcohol, and the dude just pulls out a flask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, prohibition was was difficult to enforce, to, to put it mildly. It, it, it's like the problem we have with meth nowadays, but, like, worse. The fact that you can make it with, like, ingredients found in the average home makes it a little hard to control. I was gonna say it's like marijuana prohibition because you can grow that in your yard, but you went right to bathtub meth. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, not everyone has the appropriate heat lamps. (laughs) But they do have access to large quantities of Sudafed, apparently. Uh, Cool. Cool, 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 cool. So the three men decided they were going to get their party on for the weekend, and they rented three adjacent rooms on the top floor of the St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco. Room 1220 was set aside as a party room. Room 1221 was for Lal Sherman, and Arbuckle shared room 1219 with Fred Fishback. Um, I guess they don't get their own rooms. They're just, just two dudes sharing a hotel room. Well, that used to be way more normal back in the day. I'm sure it was. It's just, it's funny to think that a bunch of millionaires were like, nah, we'll go splitsies. You can afford <laughs> separate beds. Did you need to cuddle? <laughs> Are you on a high school band trip? What is this? 
Yeah, was there only one room? What kind of fan fiction universe are you living in? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, that, that detail always strikes me as odd. They got there and they immediately started shipping in booze. A shipment of scotch and gin was delivered to the hotel rooms from a local restaurant on Saturday evening. I didn't know they had DoorDash. Yeah, they had DoorDash for booze. If you had enough money, you could just get a crate of the stuff run up to your hotel room. That should just tell you how much people did not give a shit. Nothing is truly illegal if you're rich. I mean, the most dangerous game is probably, like, at least a little illegal, but, like, almost anything else. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I think there's now people on this earth who are rich enough to hunt humans for sport. Jeff Bezos definitely, and I bet he has. He can for sure hunt a man for sport. But, um, for rich people, getting a hold of drugs is never a problem. But it's a little surprising that Arbuckle was in a party mood at all. He was recovering from an onset accident that had given him second-degree burns on both of his butt cheeks. Oh! Yeah, didn't see that detail coming, did ya? Second-degree burn on his butt cheeks. Butt cheeks, both of them. He had some toasty buns. So he apparently spent pretty much the entire weekend in his pajamas and a purple bathrobe. I honestly would not be in a party mood. No. I don't want to have tons of people around while I'm face down crying with an ice pack on my ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I'm dealing with a charbroiled ass, I just need to be alone. I need to be alone when I don't, so... <laughs> yeah, like, that's a very solitary mood, in my opinion. The whole thing was basically what you'd expect from a Hollywood party. It was Arbuckle and his actor friends just kind of hanging out with random other actors, groupies, showgirls... Just drinking, eating, dancing to music on a Victrola record player, and just generally trashing the hotel. Tale as old as time. Celebrities have been destroying hotel rooms for as long as there have been celebrities. <laughs> so you can actually see police photographs of what the hotel rooms looked like after nearly three days of partying, and they really did a number on the place, I will say. They threw the TV out the window, despite the fact that they would not have had a TV out the window. Okay, so, like, before you had, like, TVs, like, what kind of entertainment were you supposed to do in a hotel room? Do you just, like, throw, chuck the Bible out the window? <laughs> Drugs, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what you're really supposed to do with yourself during this era. You can't legally drink. There's not really television. You can go to silent mo I guess that's why they produced, like, 400 silent films a year. There was nothing else to do. I don't have any cocaine, and I don't have any jacks. What should I do with myself? <laughs> I mean, there was the old the old hobby of just, like, seeing if there was any house fires in the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, people, those used to be a spectator sport. You used to have to make your own fun, by which I mean arson. Yeah, on the morning of September 5th, one of Arbuckle's acquaintances happened to be in the lobby of the nearby Palace Hotel and spotted an attractive dark-haired woman hanging out with a small entourage from Los Angeles. The acquaintance asked a bellhop who the woman was and was told that she was Virginia Rapp, the movie actress. Arbuckle had known Rapp for several years and invited her to come up to their hotel rooms for drinks. Actually, is it Rapp? Rappe? I actually never really got clarity on this. R-A-P-P-E. Well, I, I definitely hope it's not Virginia Rape, because that would be upsetting. Yeah, that actually became a, a point of contention in the uh, newspaper articles. Uh, in oh, did people actually discuss the point of nominative determinism in this instance? <laughs> yeah, they did. Uh, they did a little bit. Uh, with the double P, I would say rap. I think it's rap as well. We're going to go with that pronunciation. Yeah, if only because it's less awkward. Well, however her name is said, uh, Virginia agreed to go up to Arbuckle's room for some drinks and told her friends, I'll go up there and if the party is a bloomer, I'll be back in 20 minutes. She never returned. Bloomer meaning bad? I'm assuming bloomer must be old-timey slang for a bust. I don't know. 
It's gotta be. Because, like, I I know what bloomers are. Yeah, if the party um, is a pair of ladies' undies, I shall leave. I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, kids these days. <laughs> it's incredible how much language changes in just a hundred years. It's really not that long a span of time. It reminds me of that one old school Batman comic. Like, like the word boner used to mean mistake. Oh, yes. And, like, jo- Joker's talking about, like, making a big boner, and, like, everyone's ha- talking about big boners. <laughs> <laughs> oh, make the biggest boner of all! Yeah, it's like how Dick used to be a common uh, nickname for Richard, and we've kind of moved away from that now. <laughs> yeah, we know we do, we do much more serious names, like Ringo. Is that a short for Richard? Yeah, his name's Richard. What? His name's... What? Ringo's actual name is Richard. Well, I just feel like my whole world just got turned upside down. What? <laughs> I I learned that a few weeks ago. His name's he's Richard Starkey, and he went with Ringo Starr. I mean, I kind of get it, but fuck. <laughs> it's it's short for Richard. <laughs> wow, I guess that's the that's the best he could do. If only maybe. Be, if only because Dick Starr was a little bit risque. <laughs> Dick Star would have been much funnier, though. Actually, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of mad we didn't go with that. Not to spoil a 110-year-old court case, but Virginia Rapp was a struggling and obscure actress and model, and her untimely death after the events of Roscoe Arbuckle's hotel party kind of ended any chance of her career picking up. She's much better remembered for her death than she is for anything she did during her life. You, you mean dying doesn't just, like, catapult you to stardom? Well, not normally. I don't I don't think this is a replicable trick. Virginia's tombstone claims she was born in 1895 and that she was 26 years old at the time of her death. Yeah, but they tend to be fast and loose back in the day. She was actually 30 or 31 at the time of her death. We know that for a fact. She was shaving years off of her age, which was a trick that Hollywood actresses pulled for decades, even to this day. Unless an actress was famous as a child star, you should go ahead and add two to ten years to the age on their Wikipedia page. Yeah, it's one of those things where, like, directors just get sticker shock with anyone who's over the age of 30. So you just you just stretch being 27 as long as you can. We just have no idea what 30-year-olds actually look like because, like, everyone's just been lying about their age for 200 years. We have excellent nutrition nowadays. People also don't smoke anymore. Yeah, so. that's true. Like, we, we, we have a much longer shelf life. That was always the thing my mom did when I was a kid. She would just point at old people smoking on the side of the road, and she'd just like, ah, oh, it's her 26th birthday. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's pretty funny. <laughs> it was good. Uh-oh. It was good. You don't smoke, though, do you, Jessica? So I do not. Worked. I, 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 <laughs> actually, no, you know what really worked? My mom turning me and saying, you have asthma, so if I ever catch you smoking, you won't have to worry about cancer, because I'll kill you. An interesting side effect, but a a powerful deterrent. Virginia Rapp was born in Chicago and raised by her grandmother after her mother passed away when she was 11. At the age of 14, she began a career in modeling, working as both a commercial and an art model. She moved to San Francisco in 1916 to continue her career as an artist model. While in San Francisco, she was briefly engaged to a dress designer, but he died in a tragic streetcar accident before they could marry, which is a tough break. (laughs) <laughs> that is so 1920s. <laughs> it's very 19, 1910s San Francisco. It's just yeah. casual streetcar death. After the death of her fiancé, she moved to Los Angeles and began to pursue a career in film. She was cast in a large role in the 1917 romantic comedy film Paradise Garden, 
and then landed the lead female role in the drama film Over the Rhine, which was released in 1920 under the original name and re-released in 1922 as Isle of Love, alongside Rudolph Valentino and the popular drag performer Julian Eltinge. Oh. Also, if you don't know anything about silent film, you should for sure look up the career of Julian Eltinge. He just played women straight. Like, he, he didn't play a drag performer or a... It wasn't like a comedic role. He was just, like, one of the ladies. He was just playing women. And nobody commented. It was surprisingly progressive era in some in some ways. We went backward before we went forward. But yeah, no, he just... Whether whether this was a gender identity thing or just something he found success doing um, is kind of up in the air because he... He started as a child actor who played girls and became successful that way, so it's not clear if this is something uh, that he just... So, like, there was just some continuity. It's not clear if this is a career continuity thing or a personal thing, or because he wasn't safe to uh, live this way outside of, of costume, but nobody really knows. Um, hard to say. Rapp began a relationship with Henry Lerman, a prominent director of the era who gave so few fucks about the safety of his actors on set that he was nicknamed Mr. Suicide. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like a Batman villain. <laughs> also also an interesting dude to, to learn more about. He, he gave no fucks at all. <laughs> the Stanley Kubrick of his day. The Screen Actors Guild would... Oh, they would shit. They would shit a brick. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> By 1920, Virginia Rapp had moved into his house and the couple were engaged, although the 1920 census lists her as a boarder in his home because scandal. We can't admit our affair to the census. <laughs> she starred in a number of Lerman's films, but so much of his work has been lost that we can't really be sure how many or what her roles were. Border number one, border number two. <laughs> yeah, that's the role she played in the census. But the exact events that unfolded after Virginia Rapp arrived at Roscoe Arbuckle's party have been the subject of debate for more than a century. Although there were a ton of witnesses there, they were all hammered at the time, and many of them were of dubious credibility at the best of times. But here are the events that people more or less agreed upon. So Virginia Rapp arrived at the party at around noon on Monday, September 5th, 1921. They were partying at noon. Oh no no! This is this is like day. They ordered alcohol on Saturday evening. Party's still going Monday at noon. These people go hard. When are you sleeping? A party that wraps up in an evening. Jessica, what are you a child? Is this a seven-year-old's birthday party? I think not. I, I excuse me, as you well remember, I tended to leave mutual parties we attended at 9 p.m. because <laughs> I had to sleep. Yeah, you turned into a pumpkin at 9.30. <laughs> <laughs> I was the only person who was well rested on Sunday mornings, thank you very much. <laughs> You've made me breakfast many a time when I was still trying to figure out what planet I was on. I think my favorite was the B&E B&E, where, like, I had left the night before around 10 p.m., and then I just broke in at 8 a.m. the next morning and made breakfast. <laughs> you did. And the doors were locked. I know that for a fact, too. I don't know how you got into the house, but I woke up <laughs> at, like, 10 a.m. in somebody else's house, and Jessica's just like, morning, pancakes? Like, how did you get in here? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're useful to have at a party. It's <laughs> the next day. I once went to a party that had a 
a THC chocolate fountain. I made pancakes for people, but they were all high as shit, so they started dipping the pancakes into the chocolate, and it just... (laughs) (laughs) It's just a downward spiral from there. It was a munchy spiral, I will tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, they're they're on just straight up day three of their partying. (laughs) To to borrow a popular phrase from Twitter, I know it smells crazy in there. Um, (laughs) Uh, There's definitely stimulants available here. There's definitely... Oh, anything you want is available here, I think. I don't know what kind of stimulants, because, like, I'm not a coke fiend from the 1910s, but there's definitely stimulants. <laughs> well, when Virginia Rapp arrives at noon, Roscoe Arbuckle is basically holding court in his pajamas and bathrobe in room 1220, the party room. Just kind of drinking, chatting, shooting the shit, entertaining his entourage and whatever girls they've found to join the party. It's apparently a pretty good time. The restaurant delivered another shipment of booze shortly after she arrived. Everybody was liquored up and dancing to jazz music on the Victrola. They're having a grand old time. So Virginia's friends from the Palace Hotel came over to join the party, which was apparently not a bloomer. A boxer brief, perhaps. A boxer brief. I'm, I'm going to rate everything with underwear from now on. Yeah, Virginia's friends were publicist, film publicist Alfred Semnocker and his female companion, Bambina Mode Del Monte, which are two of the most aggressively 1920s names I think we've seen yet. <laughs> In fairness, Bambina is a chosen name. Um, she goes by several names throughout her life, but sometimes it's Mode Bambina. Sometimes it's Bambina Mode. Bambina Alamode. She's pie. Um, <laughs> we're just going to go with Bambina because it's fun to say. So Alfred was actually Virginia's manager at the time, and Bambina was somebody he was sort of seeing, from most accounts. Female companion. Female companion. Bambina and Virginia didn't know each other very well. They had only met for the first time just a couple of days before the party. Virginia reportedly spent the first part of the party just pounding orange blossoms and chatting with Arbuckle. They knew each other. They were friends. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, everybody knows everybody. An orange blossom, when I had to look this up, was a popular Prohibition-era cocktail. It fell out of favor pretty quickly after that. It's basically a screwdriver made with gin, and it was invented to try to make the taste of bathtub gin more tolerable. It's it's pretty rough stuff. Of course, any cocktail you can make with this shit is going to be disgusting. I can kind of understand why it fell out of favor after... After Prohibition ended. Um, bathtub gin didn't taste like the modern gin you'd get out of a bottle. It was a little more g- gamey. <laughs> oh. 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 I'm not going to say rancid. Yeah, we're not going to go with rancid, but it's a little... Mm, it's, I don't, I'm, I'm not even going to call it an acquired taste. It's just got hints of paint thinner. It tastes exactly <laughs> like alcohol made in the pl- same place you wash your ass should taste, okay? <laughs> and it's a little they can't they can't regulate the strength of it as well as they can today so cuz you're not making it with professional equipment you're 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 not getting it from a, a regular supplier so you can take the stain off a deck with it <laughs> but yeah so at some point virginia got up and left room 1220 to go find a bathroom she went over to lowell sherman's room room 1221 but the room was occupied bambina delmont was in there with Sherman, if you get my drift. 
Uh-huh, uh-huh. They were being roommates. They're fucking. This is this is already an adult podcast. We already have a content advisory warning, so I'm just gonna yeah. They were being border and landlord. Well, how do you pay rent? Holy fuck. <laughs> <laughs> they were out over there companioning. <laughs> Getting acquainted. <laughs> Which sort of, yeah, makes sense because she doesn't go any further into the room. She goes, ah. And she goes to Arbuckle and Fishback's empty room instead, but she doesn't return to the party. Mm. So sometime before 3 p.m., Arbuckle got up and went to his room, closing the door behind him. And this is kind of where the story gets messy. So there's several conflicting reports from the party. All Again, all these people are wasted and they're not really paying attention to what's going on. But there's basically two versions of what happened next. There is Roscoe Arbuckle's version of events, and there is Bambina Del Mont's version of events. So Roscoe Arbuckle said that he went to his room to shower and change into actual clothing because one of the party guests had asked him to drive her to town. He's on day three of drinking. He's like, yeah, no, that sounds like a swell idea. Drinking and driving, my favorite two things. (laughs) I actually don't know that he was, if he was drinking or if he was drunk. It's not really mentioned, um... I, I assume that he was, but you never know. But when he entered his room to get changed, he said he'd found Virginia vomiting into the toilet and saying that she didn't feel well. Arbuckle said that he carried her to bed to lie down because he assumed that she had simply had too much to drink. He then went to find other partygoers to help tend to Virginia, and when he re-entered the room with the other guests, they found her writhing and tearing at her clothes in pain. Arbuckle said that he was alone in his room with Rap for about 10 minutes before getting other guests to help assist her. Arbuckle and the other partygoers put her in a cold bath to see if that would help relieve the pain, and when it didn't help, they moved her to an empty room down the hall and summoned the hotel doctor to come examine her. And by this point, she's apparently barely conscious. The hotel doctor examined her and determined that she had simply had too much to drink. And in true 1920s fashion, he then doses her with morphine to calm her hysterical womanly wailing and leaves her to rest in the hotel room. You know what um, goes really good with, like, a, just an excessive amount of bathtub gin? Opioids! <laughs> Don't mix downers and downers, kids. It's not what killed her, but that's coming. For some reason, she was kept dosed with morphine in the hotel room for three days before being transferred to a hospital. What the fuck? Nobody has ever really been able to explain why this was done or who made this decision. It's kind of inexplicable looking back as to why they didn't just take her to a hospital. People at the time thought it was odd. This is not some strange, um... Like, this is not some kind of, like, temporal dissonance with, like, the culture of the past. This is weird. You took people to hospitals in the 1920s. Like, that was very much the thing to do when somebody's writhing around in pain. Virginia was eventually taken to a hospital on September 8th and died there the following day on September 9th, 1921. Like, who doesn't recover from, like, a little bit too much alcohol after three fucking days? People who aren't managing chronic health conditions. There's a twist! So while Virginia Rapp was in the hospital, Bambina Mode Delmont approached the doctors and told a very different story than the one Arbuckle had told about the events of the party. She claimed that Arbuckle had raped Virginia and that his weight had basically crushed her and caused her medical symptoms. We've mentioned before, this is not a kind time to be a fat person. 
So the idea that like this dude crushed this woman to death with his bulk was sort of... He's only like 300 pounds. It seemed plausible on its face. No, he's not that big a man. He's like 250... He's between 250 and 300 for most of his life. Like how fragile is your rib cage? <laughs> and he's, like... he's tall. Like he's... It, yeah, it's pretty well distributed. It's not concentrated. I think he's 5'10". I think he's he's tall for the time. Lots of women have sex with dudes who weigh more than 250 pounds and survive it. That's a pretty common experience. Doctors examined Virginia for signs of sexual assault, and they concluded there was no evidence that she'd been sexually assaulted or had had sex before she died. After Virginia died, two separate autopsies were performed on her body. Both reached the same conclusion. Virginia had died from a ruptured bladder and peritonitis, a condition where the lining of the inner wall of the abdomen becomes inflamed. This can cause complications that can apparently worsen your health. One of the two doctors noted that this might have been caused by some external pressure, but the other didn't speculate on a cause. The doctors also noticed some bruising of her right arm and her thighs, but no evidence of a sexual assault. It was later discovered um, that Virginia Rapp suffered from a chronic and recurring urinary tract infections and bladder infections in a condition known as cystitis. Um, cystitis is aggravated by the overconsumption of alcohol. Oh. <laughs> is it? At the eventual trial, several people who knew Virginia testified it was common for her to overindulge at parties and end up writhing around and tearing at her clothes in pain, just as she had done at Arbuckle's party. But Bambina Delmont was not happy that doctors had not pursued her rape allegations further and went to the police. Unlike the doctors, the police agreed with her, and Roscoe Arbuckle was arrested for her murder. Seems seems very fast. He was arrested within like a day or two of her death. They this all unfolded very quickly. And after Arbuckle's arrest, the media lost their ever-loving goddamn minds. <laughs> when have they ever not? It was the first major celebrity scandal in America. The country had never seen anything quite like this before, and the early tabloids were determined to milk this for everything it was worth. There was a practice back in the early 20th century. It's still around today, although the term has fallen out of use, but it's called yellow journalism. It was really at its height around here. It's basically what we what we call tabloid journalism now. So these are sensationalist stories that are poorly researched or not researched or completely taken out of context. It's kind of early clickbait. We don't really care what the truth is. It's it's, it's besides the point. What what matters is getting getting money and getting eyes on paper. The San Francisco Examiner, an early tabloid, ran 17 separate stories about the scandal on September 13th alone. Anybody willing to talk about it was making it into the papers, whether they had any connection to this or not. In many ways, Roscoe Arbuckle was an easy villain, especially for the Hollywood crowd. He was fat, uneducated, and had come from a poor, broken, alcoholic family in Kansas. Not to put too fine a point on it. He was largely portrayed as this, like, hulking, low-foreheaded beast who'd preyed on this poor, innocent girl. And And this is another thing about, like, problems with media. You should be suspicious of anything that tells you everything you want to hear about people. Always. Uh, anything that confirms all your worst, secret, mean opinions, <laughs> you should question it. That's, yeah, sketch. 
if, if something tells you every hateful little thought in your head out loud, that's somebody who wants your money. <laughs> that is yeah. not somebody who has your best interests at heart. And that's not someone who's telling you the truth. That's a person with an axe to grind and they want you to help them grind it. The, the, the general theme of like, you don't have to care about the poor because the poor are all secretly evil and they kind of deserve to be poor. Like that, that's kind of a thing. Rap's fiance even went as far as to say, that's what comes of taking vulgarians from the gutter and giving them enormous salaries and making idols of them. Oof. And he's not just some random dude. He's a major director at the time. Like this is a quote he said to the media. Oh boy. Theaters pretty much immediately stopped showing Arbuckle films, with many theaters and studios actually throwing out or destroying any Arbuckle reels they had lying around to avoid having any connection to him whatsoever. So, like, he hasn't even been convicted. He's just been arrested. We're just shoveling it right into the fire. Yeah, and this big push to, like, to throw out his movies, to destroy the reels, it's a big part of the reason why so much of his work is now lost. It's also why so much of his work only survives in foreign language editions, because other countries weren't tapped into American media the way that they are now. So a lot of people just happily watching silent film overseas didn't, didn't know anything about this. Fellow actors were forbidden by their studios to make any sort of statement in support of Arbuckle on threat of serious career consequences. The only two of them disobeyed. Charlie Chaplin was in his native England at the time. Another person whose life you probably know less about than you think you do, but Charlie Chaplin was uh, banned from the U.S. for quite some time on uh, suspicion of being a communist. I was talking about this to someone the other day. Like, I'm like, oh yeah, Charlie Chaplin was banned from the United States. And they're, they're like, oh, because he was dating a teenager? And I'm like, no, no, not that. <laughs> no, no, they were actually fine with that. <laughs> no, it was it was the left-wing stuff. It was, they thought he was a communist. Yeah, no, Charlie Chaplin was in England at the time and didn't really give a fuck about the U.S. Uh, media engine at that point. So he freely spoke to the press in support of Arbuckle, saying that he wouldn't harm a fly. Um, and Buster Keaton also broke with his studio by making a public statement in support of Arbuckle and was stewed out by the studio for doing it. Buster Keaton, the comedic genius loyal friend. That's that's the theme of this story. Oh, Buster Keaton was a fucking mensch. Buster Keaton is one of the most stand-up dudes in history. Like... <laughs> Not only could he fall off a five-story building and survive, but he he was a bro. <laughs> Arbuckle had all of his shows being thrown out, and then he also had this wall of silence from his friends and colleagues in the film industry. Not to say that, like, entertainment is filled with cowards, but, like, it's a network-heavy industry where, like, it's very hard to stick your neck out. Yeah, because you'll never work in this town again. And it's that's still true today. You really can't piss people off and walk away from that with your career unscathed. And then, of course, as these things happen, in the retellings and retellings and... It becomes more and more... More and more salacious. More and more scandalous with the hotel party eventually described as an orgy. Just absolutely bacchanal. Papers back then had to sell papers to make money with papers competing against each other for a customer base who just don't have time to read six newspapers a day. Papers back in the day made money. What a fun thing. What a, what a unique concept. So they have to keep the public's attention on this story. They have to keep getting more and more salacious. It's almost like television didn't invent this. <laughs> it's almost like this is the worst part of human nature, just emerging over and over again. 
the hotel party, which was really, seriously, just a bunch of actors sitting around, getting wasted, shooting the shit, and dancing to a phonograph, a, a record player. You and I have definitely been at parties exactly this wild. I've been, I've been to much wilder parties than this. Absolutely. I have I have also been to parties much wilder than this, but I didn't know it because I left at 9 p.m. <laughs> you left at 9.30 before anything got interesting. In the media, this becomes the most scandalous, sinful party of the century. There was a little thing that got blown out of proportion where Al Semnacker, who was Virginia's manager, who had also been at the party, testified that Arbuckle had applied a piece of ice to Virginia's body but he was too embarrassed when he was giving his deposition to say where he had applied the ice. When pressed to provide details, he only whispered the word snatch and wouldn't provide any clarification. Oh! Um, yeah! That's, which is an adorably old-timey word, which has almost entirely fallen out of use. But yeah, back, <laughs> in, back in the day, they couldn't say the word snatch in court. It was too much. Too much! Too much. Admitting that a woman has a vagina. Ugh. But, well, this is this is why you gotta teach your kids the proper words for their bodies. Arbuckle had put the ice on Virginia's lower abdomen to try to ease the pain because that she's... Oh, yeah, because it was the relevant part of her body. Her bladder ruptured. Your bladder is quite far down on your abdomen. And he said that Balbina, Bambina Delmont had actually been the first to do this, to try to put ice on her lower abdomen, and he was just sort of helping. Um, mm. Some accounts say that he just sort of picked up a piece of ice that had been placed there. Other witnesses at the party confirmed Arbuckle's version of events. They had just put ice very low on her abdomen because that's the part of her that hurt. But the tabloids weren't really hearing it. No, because that's not fun. Nuance is not fun. Yeah, no, it's not. And it got even more vague because newspapers at the time were not allowed to print the word snatch or any other euphemisms for the female body. What about unmentionables? Is unmentionables acceptable? It had to be vague. You did have to be super, super vague. You just had to imply. Which is a problem when you're talking about the details of a crime. Mm-hmm. It sure does. They couldn't really go into any of the lurid details or speak on this with any specificity because it went against the sensibilities of the nation. It's like an entire society with the same basic problem of a child who's been molested but doesn't know how to say words <laughs> other than, like, monkey for their private parts. Yeah, you're trying to discuss a story that involves, a, like, a potential sexual assault and the most specific you can get is, like, no-no parts. Like, this is not helpful. Trying to imply that he may have touched her pee-pee. And it's like... You're adults. <laughs> You're adults. Well, they were intentionally vague, printing headlines saying things like Arbuckle had tortured Virginia with ice. What? The clear implication from these stories was that Arbuckle had raped Virginia with a piece of ice. Oh. Which, yeah, which they then- I should have put a content warning at the beginning of this. Somebody dies and it's about a sexual assault. This is- this is not a, uh, this is not a pleasant episode. This- these things didn't happen. <laughs> to be clear, um, there all evidence suggests that none of this happened. No, like he he placed ice low on her abdomen in a purely first aid context with witnesses. 
he wasn't alone in a room doing this. And like we're we're implying that she, he violated her with an icicle. Yeah, so multiple people who were there and present and helping backed him up on the story that he hadn't done this and the courts were very clear that this never happened. But the tabloids implied that that was what had happened, that he had raped her with a piece of ice because they're saying he took some ice to her no-no bits. Use your imagination. Just fill in the blanks. <laughs> fill in the blanks, which people did. And as the story developed, it was saying, well, he got angry because he couldn't get it up. He was This was the result of impotence, so he grabbed this piece of ice. Ah, uh, okay. Again, none of this ever happened, but it's a shitstorm of hating that he's poor and fat and being vague around the language and not using specific details about what happened. It all became this perfect storm because you can't hold them accountable for lying when all they're doing is insinuating. They're implying, and the rumor continued to spiral from there. The, that rumor became gradually more sensational until eventually a popular story was circulating that Arbuckle had raped Rap with an empty Coke bottle. Which is a rumor that people still believe about him to this day. And this is not grounded in anything. The judge in the case eventually ruled that the entire ICE story was ridiculous and completely irrelevant to the case, and he reduced Arbuckle's charge from first-degree murder to manslaughter on that basis. Once this was- they were like, enough of this. This is not relevant to anything. It didn't happen. Also, like, even- even like Snatch, the distinction between the vagina and the vulva is important here. Like, is it the mons pubis, i.e. the fatty part near the stomach? Well, it's your bladder, but they're just sort of referring to a whole woman's downstairs area, and they're letting imaginations run wild. Yeah, everything below the belly button is just given the same word. And note, this is important. Use proper anatomical language. Can't do it, but the judge did eventually get to the bottom of it and was like, no, this is clearly not what this was. Um, so he did reduce the charges to manslaughter, and Arbuckle was allowed to make bail after three weeks in pretrial detention, which was apparently quite traumatic for him, and he was released to await trial. So the prosecutor in Arbuckle's case was San Francisco District Attorney Matthew Brady. Brady was apparently an ambitious man with aspirations of running for California governor, and he made it very clear that he intended to win the case against Roscoe Arbuckle at any cost. Um, but this is 1920s U.S., there are, um, how do I say this kindly? There is a contingent of the population that are still very much clutching those Bibles. That was not a kind way to say that. Never mind. I don't care. There's a very conservative, very puritanical, Bible-clutching crowd who view Hollywood as nothing but filthy, amoral rot, and they are stoked to see a Hollywood person taken down for what they see as this, like, Sodom and Gomorrah style lifestyle. Like they 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 just see Hollywood as this amoral place where family values go to die. This is mid-prohibition, and it's not really a secret that these people are partying hard. Prohibition was popular when it was passed. Like there was there was a lot of people who were for this. They saw alcohol as an unacceptable moral decay. And that's the crowd he's trying to win favor with to become governor of California. In in their defense, like Alcohol was bad for society. Oh yeah, no, it still is. But <laughs> they had a point there. <laughs> like one of the reasons why, like the prohibition movement and the early, um, the early female empowerment movement, 
the the suffragette movement, part of the reason why they were so intertwined was because like men drinking the family's money and going home to beat their wives, like that was seen as a feminist issue. Well, I mean, it sort of was, but uh... it's just it's just that like complete prohibition is just usually not an effective policy. <laughs> not typically, no. But there, there was still a large undercurrent of people who really wanted to see Hollywood taken down a peg. They saw this as something that needed to be cleaned up. Matthew Brady saw prosecuting a Hollywood actor, especially one as prominent as Roscoe Arbuckle, for such a salacious crime as basically a slam dunk. This was going to score him some pretty major points with this group of people. But there's always a problem when prosecutors get political. Yeah, and it doesn't go well for him. But he originally planned to seek the death penalty against Arbuckle. Like, he was really going for it. Oh, boy. He had to take this off the table after the charge was reduced from first-degree murder to manslaughter. But that was his original intent. He wanted to execute. If I fry this fat man, then I shall be governor. execute what he saw as a representative of Hollywood's moral decay. Oof. Intense. But unfortunately for him... The case began to fall apart pretty much immediately. Well, of course, like, this is happening in the course of, like, three weeks. Well, also, it's not a very good case because it rests on the testimony of one person, Bambina Mode Delmont, who was originally intended to be the star witness of the case. But as they're preparing for trial, it comes out that she has a criminal record for fraud, blackmail, extortion, and bigamy. Oh, so she's sketchy as shit. Yeah, she's she's sketchy as shit. She goes by several different names throughout her careers. Um, she marries dudes while still married to other dudes. She's she's run several blackmail, fraud, and extortion schemes throughout her life. This is not a great start for a case that relied heavily on her testimony and her credibility. She also made several major changes to her story in the retellings. At one point, claiming that she had seen Arbuckle drag Virginia into his room, shouting, I have waited for five years to have you. Claiming that she'd had to kick the door in to get into the room to rescue Virginia. That's a hell of a retelling. That's a hell of a detail. You don't think anyone else would have noticed that? Yeah, she left that out the first time, but she added it in later. Every time she would retell the story to a different authority, they would get new details. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. And it's always a little bit more dramatic. Yeah, she claims that while Virginia was writhing in pain, she screamed, He did it! I know he did it! None of these details matched any other witnesses' versions of events. She's the only person who seems to have remembered this woman being dragged into a hotel room, screaming in the middle of a party. Which Roscoe Arbuckle, a... One of the most famous people on Earth. Sex-crazed lunatic did in broad daylight on a Monday... In front of a whole bunch of people. Yeah, the other witnesses' events didn't always match up with each other, but they none of them matched up with her at all. The discrepancies between them were a little more minor, a little more like, we're drunk, but none of them heard anything like this. <laughs> Maud Delmont also admitted to her lawyer that she was at least eight to ten whiskeys deep when she saw Virginia in Arbuckle's room. <laughs> That's a lot of whiskey. That's a lot, actually. That's a lot. Eight to ten deep. This took place at 3 p.m. on a Monday. That's a lot of whiskey. (laughs) Hasn't she only been there since, like, noon? Yeah, 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 no, she went hard. She also was like, yeah, and she had sex with a random dude. She was busy. So you had ten whiskeys 
in three hours. She had three. She had ten whiskeys, banged a dude in a hotel room, and then witnessed a rape in three hours. That was that's her story. She's I sticking mean, to it. fast living, I guess. The defense was also able to produce a letter written by Delmont to them to to their to Roscoe's attorneys, showing that she had attempted to extort money from them. Uh huh. She was such an unreliable witness that Brady had to remove her from the case entirely and never put her on the stand. But if you don't have her, then what do you have? Well, you got other evidence, but none of it's really fantastic. So Arbuckle's first trial began on November 14th, 1921 in the San Francisco City Courthouse. Without the testimony of Maude Delmont, the prosecution had to scramble to find other witnesses from the party. The new star witnesses were two party guests named Zay Prevost and Alice Blake, both of whom worked as showgirls, and neither was a particularly great witness. Zay had originally told police that she heard Virginia say, he killed me as she was moaning in agony. At both the grand jury hearing and the trial, however, she denied having heard this. She and Alice Blake would only eventually testify to having heard Virginia say, he hurt me. Another party guest, Betty Campbell, was brought up to testify that she had seen Arbuckle smiling happily as Virginia Rapp was writhing in pain. The prosecution also produced a nurse from the hospital who claimed that the bruising on Virginia's body was likely caused by rape. A criminologist testified that both Virginia Rapp and Roscoe Arbuckle's fingerprints had been found on the inner doorknob. He argued that this was evidence that Rapp had attempted to leave the room and Arbuckle had put his hand over top of hers to stop her. Uh, pretty shaky. Pretty shaky. Like, one, you don't even know necessarily what order those fingerprints happened in. <laughs> and you, you don't know that they were left at the same time. All, all, that, all that really tells you is that, like, at one point she touched the doorknob and then he touched the doorknob. You, you, they don't come with timestamps. Also, like... I, 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 this is probably obvious something you might discuss later, but like, what kind of absolute fucking sadist <laughs> is just having like an unobjectionable giggle <laughs> at a woman who's writhing in pain who he's just sexually assaulted? Well, they thought that that would that would be convincing, and uh, well, we'll see. There's there's some issues with that witness. That's not something that you just turns on one day. You just act like a completely lovely human being for decades of life, and then you start giggling at rape victims. Oh yeah, it's definitely a weird detail, and it didn't actually help their case. No, like that's that's more that's more off-putting than anything. That doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. And their final kind of piece of the prosecution's evidence was that one of the doctors who had treated Rap at the hospital, Dr. Arthur Beardsley, also testified it was possible an external force had ruptured Rap's bladder. Possible. So, Roscoe had hired a very competent legal team, headed by a lawyer named Gavin McNabb, and the defense took the prosecution's case apart fairly easily. So, Betty Campbell, the model who claimed she had seen Arbuckle smiling, admitted on cross-examination that prosecutor Matthew Brady had threatened to prosecute her for perjury if she didn't agree to take the stand and claim that she'd seen Arbuckle smiling. So she she didn't actually see it. She admitted on cross that she'd been threatened into saying it. Oh, well, now I have some questions about why we're not prosecuting the prosecutor. Oh, yeah, no, that, that I had that same thought a lot. 
A maid from the hotel testified that she deep-cleaned the hotel room from top to bottom before investigators ever set foot in it, including the doorknobs, which undermined the claim that Rapp and Arbuckle's prints had been found. Remember, the room was not a crime scene when they checked out. Virginia languished for four days before dying. She had that place nice before police ever showed up. Dr. Beardsley admitted on cross-examination that he had spoken with Virginia during her time in the hospital, because she was conscious for part of it. She made no mention of Arbuckle or any sexual assault. Her story lined up with Arbuckle's. Yeah, and you'd think she would consider that important enough to discuss. The defense also produced 18 separate doctors, along with personal witnesses from Virginia's life, and medical evidence, including Virginia's actual preserved bladder in a jar, which all testified to the fact that Virginia Rapp had suffered from severe cystitis, severe enough to cause a spontaneous bladder rupture. This was a well-documented medical fact. Even then, 18 feels excessive. That's a lot of doctors. (laughs) No, it's- That is overkill. Anything more than three is just sort of you rubbing their nose in it. But they had 18 doctors, along with numerous personal witnesses from Virginia's life, who testified to the fact that she'd been having these bladder attacks for a while, especially when overindulging in alcohol. The nurse admitted on cross-examination that it was possible there was a medical cause for Virginia's ruptured bladder, that it wasn't necessarily caused by being crushed, and the nurse also admitted on cross-examination that the bruising on Virginia's body was consistent with the chunky jewelry she was wearing on the day of the party. This is the time of, of like, Bacolite jewelry, which, funny enough, we've already done an episode on. That that family was a, was a laugh and a half. Oh, man, yeah, we have mentioned Bacolite repeatedly. <laughs> if you want to hear about some incest murder, take a look at that story. I promise that family was an interesting, an interesting bunch. So go check out our Barbara Bakelin story for the rise of the Bacolite plastic empire and the resulting murders and incest. But yeah, so the bruising on Virginia's body was actually consistent with the heavy jewelry she was wearing on the day of the party. Roscoe himself also took the stand. He gave the same story he had given since the beginning. His version of events never wavered. He was apparently very calm, clear, and collected on the stand, even during very heavy and aggressive cross-examination. He consistently testified that he had believed Rap to be very drunk and that he had not known about her underlying medical condition. This trial took a total of six weeks from start to finish. The jury then deliberated for 44 hours before coming back deadlocked. They were stuck in a 10-2 split, with 10 on the side of acquittal and nobody mo- willing to budge. The judge had to declare a mistrial. How? how... <laughs> I'm so confused. I understand the like standards have shifted and we didn't exactly keep juries fully away from, like, the public fur fur But, like, really? <laughs> so, the only female juror in the case on, on the first trial, Helen Hubbard, caused a bit of a media shitstorm herself by admitting that she had intended to vote guilty, quote, until hell freezes over, and admitted that she had made up her mind early in the trial and refused to examine any of the evidence or reread any of the trial transcripts. Ooh, boy. Her husband was also a lawyer who worked in the DA's office, and she herself said that she was surprised she had not been dismissed during jury selection. That is surprising. (laughs) Yeah, the media and Arbuckle's defense had an absolute field day with her after the trial, with a lot of the media coverage being spurred on by Arbuckle's defense. 
I personally would not have admitted to that. <laughs> no, wouldn't have admitted that to the media either. You know what? I person I didn't even pay attention for the last half of the trial. You know, it's amazing they didn't tell me to leave considering my massive conflict of interest. <laughs> yeah, no, I I would not have said that in public. You have to remember that women had only been allowed to serve on juries for four years at the time. Oof, you're letting the team down, Helen. Well, that was just it. The media presented her as proof that women were too weak-minded and sentimental for such tasks. <sighs> it's a good thing we, we've moved on from such simplistic narratives about other human beings. Because I just, I just want to state this for the record. Some women can be assholes and idiots without it being a reflection of the sex as a whole. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's kind of the frustrating part. We're a hundred years past this. This trial was 101 years ago. And it's still, if a man fucks up, he sucks. If a woman fucks up, women suck. That's still true. It's an indictment of the entire sex. Oh, we're, we're making progress, but boy, is it slow. It's not that the media and general public were on Arbuckle's side, though. They still hated him. They just also hated this female juror. They had hate to go around. There was such public hatred for Roscoe Arbuckle that his wife, Minta Durfee, was actually shot at as she walked to the courthouse one morning to support her husband. Was it, weren't they divorced at this point? They're separated. They, do, they wouldn't finalize it till later. There's, they, they remained friends, though. Of course, of course. She supported him through the trial. She never wavered on that. So the second trial began on January 11th, 1922, with the same judge, prosecution, and lawyers, along with many of the same witnesses. This time, however, the defense did an even better job of picking apart the prosecution's case. Zay Prevost, the prosecution star witness, admitted on the stand this time around that she had never heard Virginia say he hurt me and testified that the prosecution had intimidated her before the first trial and forced her to lie. Which now have multiple witnesses have now said. Yeah, there's kind of a theme here. Uh, you know, that's exactly the kind of behavior I expect from a dude named Matt Brady. <laughs> 101 years have gone by, and that's still kind of a douche name. It's still a really douching Matt Brady. <laughs> Matt Brady. Yeah, no, that sounds like a guy who uh, punches a hole in the wall if he loses at Madden. <laughs> <laughs> but Alice Blake did stick to her story, but was reportedly very unconvincing on the stand and spoke with far less conviction than she had the first time around. During the first trial, the prosecution had called a sec studio security guard named Jesse Norgard to the stand. Norgard had testified at the first trial that Arbuckle had once tried to bribe him for a key to Rapp's dressing room, claiming that he wanted to play a prank on her, but that Norgard had refused to give him the key. This was sort of presented as evidence that, like, Arbuckle was stalking Virginia and had been looking for an opportunity to do this for a while. During the second trial, the defense uncovered the fact that Norgard was an ex-con and sex offender oh! currently awaiting trial for sex crimes committed against an eight-year-old girl. Oh. Uh, oh yeah, no, that's, that's a uh, big revelation. Just love it when the star witness turns out to be a child molester. <laughs> a straight-up pedophile. Um, so Norgard admitted on cross that the prosecution had offered him a reduced sentence in exchange for lying on the stand and admitted that this whole incident had never happened. You know, if if I had ongoing child molestation related legal problems, I would not attract attention to myself. 
No, but heard a reduction in his sentence, and people will kind of say anything for that. Like, how mad at you, mad at Hollywood do you have to be? You're bribing pedophiles. Before, like, you let off child rapist number three if he'll say what he want to hear. Yeah, how how big of a fish is Roscoe Arbuckle that you need to put him away that bad? Like, like he's not a mob boss. You're not exactly cleaning up the streets by letting child molesters out in order to put an actor away. I don't... Mm. The criminologist who testified against about the fingerprints in the first trial also took the stand to officially recant his testimony from the previous trial and admit that the fingerprint evidence had likely been faked. So he wasn't really in on it, but he was sort of like, oh yeah, no, that's they, they tricked me. They've been, I've been bamboozled. This time the defense also went on the attack against Virginia Rapp. The narrative that had been spun in the media over and over again was that she was a sweet, innocent girl who had been preyed on by this horrible beast. The fact that her name kind of sounds like virgin rape, especially when you see it spelled out, was unfortunately something that people really played on, that she was this innocent, virginal girl um, who had been set upon by a monster from Kansas. In a, in a move that's quite scummy by today's standards, they did go on the attack against Virginia Rapp, painting her as a hard-partying harlot and not the sweet, innocent girl that they'd been led to believe. Little bit of an overcorrection. They overcorrected in more than one way. Uh, the defense was so confident that they had curb-stomped the prosecution that they declined to call Arbuckle to the stand and rested their case without making any closing arguments. Uh, why? Big, big mistake. Big overconfidence. Straight overconfidence. The jury interpreted the defense's actions as resignation, not as a victory dance, and they assumed that they'd felt their client was indefensible. You know, you didn't even bother to defend the guy. You didn't even speak in his defense. You just interviewed a bunch of doctors. What the fuck, man? So the jury came back again in a 10-2 deadlock, but this time with 10 jurors in favor of conviction. How did you do worse? I don't know how you did worse when when How you... did you do worse? I, it's a real talent to fuck that one up. Uh, the, the star witness was a child molester. How did you do worse? I, d I don't know. Multiple witnesses admitted they'd been intimidated by the prosecution. How did you do worse? The judge once again declared a mistrial. A second mistrial. Uh, these are expensive lawyers. They are very expensive. Uh, the whole The whole process. Trials are expensive. That's a lot of money to pay on people that fucking dumb. But after the second trial was declared a mistrial, Zay Prevost, the prosecution's star witness, the one who just admitted to lying under cross-examination, she was so tired of the whole ordeal that she eventually said, fuck this shit, I'm out, and she attempted to repel out her hotel window to escape police and avoid having to testify a third trial. So the third and final trial of Roscoe Arbuckle commenced on March 13th, 1922, and right from the outset, the defense made it very clear they were not about to make the same mistake again. By this point, the case had dragged on for seven months, which was a very long for a court case at the time. It's not so much anymore. And the media had more or less kept up a constant barrage of outrage, rumor, and scandal the whole time. You're not bored yet? <laughs> they, they gotta keep this interesting. They're just, they're really milking this for everything that it's worth. I guess it's a lot easier to keep this keep this interesting when you just don't care what reality is. So this time the defense was straight up aggressive, taking the time to completely rip apart every aspect of the prosecution's case 
and do a thorough examination and cross of every single witness. The star witness, Zay Prevost, was not available during this trial as she had successfully fled the country to avoid testifying. Further weakening. Get out of there, Zay! She she fled the country under an assumed name. Um, <laughs> the defense also launched a full-on character assassination of Virginia Rapp this time around, implying that she was a dirty, dirty slut who had had numerous abortions. Again, not a great legal tactic. Not good. In many cases, straight up not allowed anymore. In sexual assault trials, you can't lampoon the victim or hold any any sexual history against her, especially one that's rumored. She never she never once accused Roscoe Arbuckle of anything. Roscoe Arbuckle took the stand during this trial and once again told the same story he had told since the beginning, reiterating he had never hurt any woman and had in fact tried his best to assist Virginia Rapp. The defense in this case also launched an attack on Belbina Modelmont, the one who had started the whole thing. She was actually profiting off of her role in the case, despite never having actually been involved in any of the trials. Of course. She'd begun doing lecture tours to speak on the evils of Hollywood and how she had single-handedly brought Roscoe Arbuckle down. So Buster Keaton actually took the stand in the third trial to testify about Maude Delmont's low moral character, presenting evidence of her involvement in blackmail, fraud, prostitution, and extortion. Buster coming in clutch. Buster coming in clutch, she was also a convicted serial bigamist, having once again been convicted of bigamy in 1922, so after the first <laughs> trial had begun. She'd, she'd been convicted before the trial had begun, and she got convicted of bigamy a second time in 1922, when she married her fourth husband, while her third was rotting in a Canadian prison for rum running. Oh, yeah. that is fun. That's fun. That is how a lot of Canadian staple wineries and like whiskey businesses got their start. Yeah, because Canada had a prohibition era that kind of lined up with the U.S.'s in a lot of ways. But we we gave it up way quicker. Oh no, yeah, no, no. The U.S. had way more patience for the uh, prohibition thing. We were we were like, no, this is this is actually not that fun. We decided it sucked immediately, <laughs> which which helps because we we just had more Catholics. Which I'm not I'm not saying anything about the alcoholism of Catholics, but like they do need wine. <laughs> yeah, it's a little <laughs> bit more culturally acceptable that like wine is necessary for some purposes <laughs> protestants are a little bit more puritanical if you understand my my meaning yeah also prohibition in canada wasn't a moral or religious thing it was about wartime efforts it was hard to get it was wasting supply lines it was wasting resources we couldn't be turning all of our good corn into booze we needed it but like even though we gave it up sooner like there are still like areas in like saskatchewan where you can't serve alcohol in the same room as a stripper. Yeah, there's we still have like localized temperance laws, but Canada only had prohibition for two years. We then spent the rest of prohibition supplying alcohol to you people. We did not care. Al Capone used to run 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 through Nova Scotia. Uh, it was that is everybody. fun. That is fun. Local color. Yeah, Nova Scotia was just rum running to the U.S. That was our like industry for a while. Well, I mean, after after they needed less wooden ships, you have to find something. Honest, honestly, if, like, the, the U.S. wants to, like, just help the maritime economy, they could reinstitute it. <laughs> <laughs> Give us a little boost, guys. A little leg up. Um, but, yeah, so in the in the closing statements, which the defense definitely made this time, they were not making that fucking mistake again, they eviscerated the prosecution for pursuing the case based almost entirely on Maude Delmont's initial complaint. 
sarcastically referring to her as the complaining witness who never witnessed, effectively implying that the prosecution was bamboozled by an unreliable and untrustworthy trollop who'd made up outrageous stories for her own personal gain, which which they were. Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of what happened. That's absolutely uh. <laughs> what happened. And then they just tried to intimidate like several other women into testifying instead. Yeah, it was a lot of threatening women with perjury. Yeah, not not exactly a feminism win here. So this time, the jury deliberated for just 6 minutes before returning with a unanimous verdict to acquit Arbuckle. <laughs> Which should have happened the first time. Yeah, apparently they spent just one of those minutes deliberating and the five minutes writing the following statement, which was read off in court by the jury foreman. Acquittal is not enough for Roscoe Arbuckle. We feel that a great injustice has been done him. We feel also that it was only our plain duty to give him this exoneration under the evidence, for there were not the slightest proof adduced to connect him in any way to the commission of a crime. He was manly throughout the case and told a straightforward story on the witness stand, which we all believe. This happening at the hotel was an unfortunate affair for which Arbuckle, so the evidence shows, was in no way responsible. We wish him success and hope that the American people will take the judgment of 14 men and women who have sat listening for 31 days to evidence that Roscoe Arbuckle is entirely innocent and free from all blame. So manly. Some people feel that that's a pretty wordy statement and a pretty articulate statement for five people scribbling on a napkin in a deliberation room in five minutes. There is there is some thought that Arbuckle's lawyers may have kind of pre-drafted some of this. Um, we'll never know. But that's, that's, that's what they read off when they exonerated him. But the foreman then handed the written statement to Roscoe who kept it for the rest of his life. All the jurors shook hands with Arbuckle or hugged him and many posed for pictures with him after the trial was concluded. In the end, the only thing he was found guilty of was the illegal purchase and consumption of alcohol, for which he paid a $500 fine. Oh, fair enough. Pretty steep in the day, actually, but he could afford it. Or could he? Paramount stopped paying Arbuckle's salary 11 days after he was arrested, with the justification that he was in jail and therefore unable to report to work. So this kind of brings us to the greater impact of the trial. So even though the trial was concluded... It would have lasting impacts on Hollywood, even even some that kind of continue to this day. The day after Paramount stopped paying Arbuckle's salary, Universal Pictures wrote the first morality clause into their contracts. These quickly became standard for studios in the aftermath of the Arbuckle scandal. And a morality clause is sort of exactly what it sounds like. It's a clause in a contract that allows a studio to stop paying or even to cancel the contract of actors who behave in ways that are deemed immoral, or in ways that besmirch the reputation of the studio. Oh, or if they're just accused of it. Yeah, it's basically an an eject button that the studio can push whenever one of the actors is caught with their pants down. They make a certain amount of sense for businesses that depend heavily on reputation and image. If somebody turns out to be a Nazi, sometimes it's helpful to hit that eject button. But they were also disastrous for many actors, and actresses in particular, especially when they were first introduced. Remember, this is happening in the year 1921. The U.S. is still 43 years away from outlawing segregation and allowing women to have bank accounts, which happened in the same year. Yeah, like, when the the problem with morality codes is they're very dependent on, like, what offends people, and sometimes what offends people is kind of fucked up. (laughs) Yeah, they're very dependent on the social mores of the day. 
And at this point, the moral standards for women were much higher than the moral standards for men. Even though it was a man who prompted this whole change, women who largely suffered from it. For instance, the actress Gloria Swanson nearly died from a botched abortion in 1924 that she only got because of her contract's morality clause. She had become pregnant with her fiancé's child before their wedding date as they waited for her divorce to be finalized. She couldn't marry her fiancé, even though she had every intention of it, she was just waiting for paperwork. If she had kept the baby, though, and somebody would have figured out that she got pregnant before the wedding, she would have faced the termination of her contract and the end of her film career. Um, so shit like that really haunted, haunted a lot of people for a long time. Morality clauses were standard for a while after the Arbuckle scandal was settled. They gradually did fall out of use in Hollywood, although they've recently begun to make a comeback, because you never know when somebody might decide to storm the U.S. Capitol building. Some companies are more prone to using them than others. If you if you were a Disney Mouseketeer, I'm thinking it's pretty likely that you had one. Absolutely. There's no chance you did not. What studios really feared, though, wasn't a temporary hit to their reputation or ticket sales. The reason some of them went so hard on morality after this Roscoe Arbuckle scandal was that they were afraid of the end of Hollywood itself. Yeah, this is, this is regulatory action that we're afraid of here. And it, it's a preemptive strike. The U.S., and I mean this with all of the love in my heart, because I lived there for several years, great country, but it is a country that absolutely excels at this pearl-clutching, won't-somebody-please-think-of-the-children moral grandstanding in a way that very few other nations do. Most of the rest of us have accepted that people are flawed, and sometimes they will do shit that you don't approve of, but they don't deserve social death. <laughs> no, and I mean, like, um, we're Canadian. You can turn on a Quebecois channel and see titties on the TV at 2.30 in the afternoon. Ah, uh, the French. That's always been true. Uh, Quebec, Quebec has had a good influence moderating the Anglophone puritanism. America has, has always sort of been a place where concerned parents and Christian religious interests are very easily weaponized, and this was very true in Prohibition. So in 1921, they're only two years into Prohibition, and the groups that had successfully lobbied to ban the moral corruption of alcohol, as we've already mentioned, are starting to look at Hollywood as the new source of moral corruption. Movie studios were terrified that federal regulations or mass government shutdowns of movie studios were coming, so they did what every major company does, and they decided to regulate themselves before the government was pushed to step in and do it. We're, we're watching tech companies do this in real time right now. So we're, we're watching social media and tech companies do this in real time right now, but this is, this is kind of what, what happens when you, when you fear censorship. The trial of Roscoe Arbuckle was as much about prosecuting Arbuckle as it was about prosecuting the entire film industry, which many right-wing and religious interest groups at the time already viewed as a hive of scum and villainy. It's also, though, not a coincidence that most studio heads and owners at the time were Jewish immigrants. There was also a pretty healthy dose of anti-Semitism. Yeah. yeah, it really can't... There's a reason, like, why they were worried about the authorities. And there's a reason why they became such a target for they're corrupting our, our children, our innocent Christian children. There was a healthy dose of anti-Semitism in a lot of the criticism. To this day, a lot of, like, the Hollywood elite stuff, some of that is just, like, sincere, like, I'm worried about the effect entertainment has on children. But some of that is very much like a hangover of the anti-Semitism of the 20th century. 
Well, something very similar happens with comic books, which is, again, very Jewish. Again, came under very similar censorship, which what resulted in them putting in the comics code. Like in December of 1921, eager to avoid future controversy, the heads of a dozen major studios came together and formed an organization called the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America. They knew that they needed someone to lead the organization who would appease their harsh critics, which meant they needed somebody white, Christian, Republican, and almost excessively religious. They needed the whitest white dude they could find. The job of leading the new organization was offered to William H. Hayes. Oh, boy. Everyone knows his name. Even if you don't know, you know it. You know the Hayes Code. You hate it. He was a campaign manager who had taken Warren G. Harding to the White House in 1920. He was offered a $100,000 annual salary to tempt him away from his current position as Postmaster General. $100,000 in 1921 is some sweet money. Hayes' first act as head of the organization was to permanently ban Roscoe Arbuckle from working in the film industry anywhere in the United States and banned any U.S. showings of his previous work. He would withdraw this ban several months later. I guess people sort of... It was excessive. Um, And also, Roscoe was acquitted several months later. Yeah, that makes it a little awkward. But this ban did cause lasting damage to Roscoe's career. Much of his work had already been destroyed by the time the ban was lifted. Um, and theaters were still had some lingering nervousness about working with him. So in 1927, Hayes would introduce the first draft of something that came to be known as the Hayes Code, which is basically a long list of things that were not allowed to be portrayed in movies in the United States. Unacceptable! Uh, verboten. The original list was divided into don'ts and be carefuls. Um, more of a, more of guidelines than a code. So enforcement of this was lax until 1934, when the Hayes office passed the much stricter Motion Picture Production Code in response to the explosion of popularity that movies had come to enjoy. Once talkies became a thing and the, the dominant form of movies, the popularity of theater and movies as an art form just exploded. So in response to this, the Hayes office passed the Hayes Code, which was very much not a suggestion, and not merely a guideline, it was very much a had-to, and they began actively censoring movies that did not follow the code. This code would remain in effect well into the 1960s and had an enormous impact on cinema history in America. This is almost entirely behind the murder your gaze trope. Yeah, the Hayes Code was militantly puritanical. There are animated Pixar movies that could not get past the Hayes Code. Toy Story 2 is risque by these standards. It had an enormous impact on film history because you couldn't do anything. Among other things, the Hayes Code is long, I'm not going to read it off, but the Hayes Code strictly forbid all forms of profanity, nudity, depictions of miscegenation, which is a fancy term for race mixing, couldn't have that on television until the 60s, blasphemy, no, like, we, we literally had internal regulations that prevented black people and white people from kissing on television. Couldn't show any form of race mixing whatsoever. No depiction of it. You could not have any unfavorable depiction of the clergy whatsoever. They could not be portrayed in a bad light. Nope. No evil priests. Fun fact, this is why uh, in The Hunchback of Notre Dame, <laughs> the villain in the original novel is clergy, but in the movie adaptations, including the Disney adaptation, he's a judge. 
the reason they had to make that change was because partially because of the Hayes Code. You couldn't show... They gave it heavy religious overtones, but like, they changed him from a clergyman because you can't acknowledge that the church can do bad things. You could not have any depiction of a man and woman in bed together. Not, like, even just sexually. You can't show them in a bed together. Here's the thing. Like, it, it was so severe. Like, there are, like, sitcom shows where, like, they have separate single beds. Yeah, that's why that trope exists. You also could not have any plotline where a criminal went unpunished for breaking the law. They had to be punished. It had. They had to get caught. And it had to be bad. You couldn't have this anti-hero thing. He had to be the bad guy. You also couldn't have anything lecherous or sexually perverted. This included any depiction of homosexuality or any depiction of premarital or extramarital relations that was presented in a positive light. This is why lesbians were just sort of like heavily implied and then killed off in the end. The code was actually so buttoned up and puritanical that filmmakers could not even do faithful adaptations of literature classics. So adaptations of the classic novels Tarzan, Frankenstein, and Rebecca from that era are basically nonsense because they had to be so seriously modified because they didn't fit with the Hays Code. How would you even go about adapting Rebecca? Yeah, I don't know why you would attempt that one. <laughs> not not to spoil like like a, a very old novel, but it's literally about a man who may or may not have killed his first wife because she may or may not have been pregnant with another man's child. Yeah, like, I don't know why they attempted how, to remake that one during the Hayes era. Why would you even <laughs> try? <laughs> Probably should have picked a different book. I don't know, but they did, and they had to make they had to make an adaptation that was so modified from the original source material that it was basically nonsense. I mean, I'm sure they figured something out. I haven't seen the old adaptation, but they got in shit for trying to adapt a classic novel. Rebecca was actually a new novel at the time, but yeah, you couldn't you couldn't adapt Frankenstein, which is so it's it's one of the original horror greats, but you could show it to a six-year-old today. Like, it's... There's nothing in there. <laughs> it, it's, it's not particularly risque. It's just... It's not. The Hays Code was abandoned in 1968 in favor of the MPAA rating system, which is the system that exists to this day. Which also has been accused of being a little puritanical, but it's it's no it's nowhere near. Nowhere <laughs> near, and, and it, it is it is actually a suggestion. <laughs> and the MPAA has changed with the times. For instance, when mm. Breakfast Club originally came out in the 1980s, it received an R rating because the characters are shown smoking pot. <laughs> <laughs> Heavens to Betsy! Oh no, teenagers indulging in an illegal activity. Because like that's the thing is that like. It just completely separates it from how people actually live. Couples slept in the same bed in the 50s. Teenagers smoked pot in the 80s. The MPAA has, has, has adjusted over time. It's still more puritanical than the Canadian rating system, which I think a lot of Americans don't realize we have our own system. Canadians tend to restrict most movies only to 14A. So mm -hmm. 14 is kind of the age when we're like, eh, what's a murder on screen? You're you're a man now, Billy. You're 14. <laughs> if you want to be restricted to 18 and over in Canada, you've got to work for it. Oh, it has to be actively pornographic. You can see titties on TV if you turn on a Quebec channel, so you've got to work for it. There has to be, at least be a flash of vulva before we start getting <laughs> concerned for people 15 and up. <laughs> the only movie I've ever been ID'd to go and see was Conan the Barbarian. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't good. Well, no. Was it for the vulva? 
<laughs> I don't know what it was for. It wasn't that interesting or good a movie. Maybe that was the restriction. They're just like, we can't show this to kids. This is tacky. <laughs> <laughs> it's in poor taste. The, the Roscoe Arbuckle scandal set off a chain of events that is, even today we rate movies and place moral standards for movies. Um, he had a huge impact on the, on the film industry. Not the impact he wanted to have. The acquittal might have cleared his name, but it didn't come anywhere close to fixing his life. After the trial, he owed more than $700,000 in legal fees to his defense team, which basically financially destroyed him. He was forced to sell his house and all of his cars to try to cover his legal costs. His films, the few that survived, were banned for large parts of his later life, and he struggled to land acting work, which put further strain on his finances. Lifelong friend and total mensch Buster Keaton stepped in to help, and in March of 1922, Buster Keaton signed over 35% of all future profits of his production company to Arbuckle in the hopes of keeping him financially afloat. And honestly, we all need a friend like Buster Keaton. Roscoe Arbuckle was not really in an emotional state to do a lot of work in the immediate aftermath of the trial. He wasn't working for Buster Keaton comedies. He was just getting a third of the profits to keep him afloat. Roscoe's marriage to Minta Durfee had kind of been on life support for years, as even from the beginning of his career where he had cut her out of a deal to get himself a, a million dollars a year. But the aftermath of the scandal finally brought their marriage to its end. After the final trial, Roscoe developed a drinking problem and became a depressed zombie version of himself. Minta commented that Roscoe only seemed to find comfort in a bottle. Buster Keaton did attempt to pull him out of his funk by giving him work on some of his own films, but his heart really wasn't in it. Minta filed for divorce in 1923 on the grounds of desertion, kind of the only thing she had available to her. And uh, you gotta you gotta pick a cause in 1923. You can't just be like, we're yeah. done here. You, you had to have a reason. You had at-fault divorce. You can't just be like, yeah, we don't really dig each other anymore. <laughs> yeah, we're decades away from at-fault divorce. Women can't have bank accounts. We're not there yet. Yeah, it, w it wouldn't be until Ronald Reagan was governor of California. Wow, that's... A, that's... Yeah, Ronald Reagan was the one who instituted no-fault divorce in, in California. That's wild. It's crazy. That's wild to think about. It's crazy that you know that off the top of your head. You have never <laughs> lived in California. <laughs> you have never been married, and you've never lived in California. It's wild that you know that. Just, it's I, I, right there. I went there. to California once in, in early... To get a divorce? In early 2020. <laughs> no, I didn't get a divorce, but I did find out that they have a absolutely no public bathrooms. It was really hard to take a poop in that city. <laughs> yeah, New York is the same. No, fuck you. Pee yourself on the subway. Um, like, this does not get talked enough about, but, like, the biggest cultural distinction between Canada and America, for me, is the almost the- Oh my god, the public the bathrooms. The public bathrooms. I, you can't poop unless you own a toilet, personally. <laughs> <laughs> Canada's big on public bathrooms. You can just sort of walk into a mall. They're everywhere. Yeah, they're everywhere. Meanwhile, I don't know, yeah. In, 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 in California, it's like they're fucking hiding them. Like, you know, we just... We just... <laughs> the pee evaporates through your skin. It's hot there. <laughs> I should have known this from the moment I got there. And, like, they had special plugs in all of the, um, all of the, all of the train stations so that you couldn't like, charge your phone. <laughs> um, and, and, like, the only thing available was, like, a, a little kiosk vending machine where you could buy a battery pack. 
<laughs> and like that should have told me right there that this was not a country accustomed to the idea that poor people need to shit. <laughs> They're just not real big on the idea of basic dignity. Um or not peeing yourself on the train. Yeah, so uh thank thanks thanks, America. I have pooped behind a Ralph. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know that Jessica has shit behind her Ralphs. That's that's knowledge we're all richer for having. Repeatedly. I repeatedly poop behind one specific Ralphs in California. <laughs> <laughs> this is why your city smell like piss. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica personally sees to it. I am personally responsible for the for the funk that is New York City. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a it's a musty smell. But yeah, Minta maintained, even though that they divorced, that she, for the rest of her life, she maintained that he was the kindest and most generous man she'd ever met, and that she had no regrets about marrying him. They did briefly reconcile after she filed for divorce, but she refiled for good in 1924, and they finalized the divorce in 1925. Roscoe married his second wife, Doris Dean, in May of 1925, which is a pretty quick turnaround, gotta say. Um, <laughs> she was an actress who sometimes appeared opposite the silent film committee in Al St. John, who happened to be Arbuckle's nephew. They did quite a few films together in the day. Arbuckle did a brief stint as a film director in the late 1920s and early 1930s, working for a small studio under a pseudonym to avoid attracting unwanted press. Buster Keaton proposed that he use the pseudonym Will Be Good, Arbuckle thought the joke was a little too on the nose and instead used the name it is a William Goodrich. It's a little too on the nose, Buster. Yeah, not not to criticize one of the comedy greats, but mm, too close. Actors were not told that the director William Goodrich was actually the famous Roscoe Arbuckle until they physically arrived on set. But once again, Arbuckle's heart really wasn't in it. He was still struggling with the alcoholism. Um, it just, he wasn't in a good a good place. Louise Brooks, an actress and famous flapper of the jazz age, actually worked on one of these films, and she said of Arbuckle, quote, He made no attempt to direct this picture. He just sat in his director's chair like a dead man. He had been very nice and sweetly dead ever since the scandal that ruined his career. But it was such an amazing thing for me to come in to make this broken-down picture and to find my director was the great Roscoe Arbuckle. Oh, I thought he was magnificent in films. He was a wonderful dancer, a wonderful ballroom dancer in his heyday. It was like floating in the arms of a huge donut. Really delightful. <laughs> I mean, that does sound fun. Floating in the arms of a huge donut is an image. In 1929, Doris Dean filed for divorce from Arbuckle on the grounds of desertion and cruelty, and she sued him for alimony. In 1932, Roscoe married his third and final wife, Addie Oakley Dukes McPhail. She was another silent film actress. And for the first time in a long time, things finally started looking up for Arbuckle. There had been growing demand over those ten years that he was in zombie mode to see him make a real comeback. And in 1932, Warner Brothers, they signed him on to make six two-reel comedies at their Brooklyn studio under his real name. These were Arbuckle's first sound films, and today they're the only existing recordings of his voice. These, the films were a huge success in America, and although they weren't allowed to be shown in the United Kingdom because he was still banned there... <laughs> I know, they, who'd have thought they held on to that grudge longer than anybody? Jeez, and the British, like, they, they have naked ladies on page three. Yeah, I know, I, I wouldn't have thought that they would be the puritanical ones. They were the last holdouts in banning Roscoe Arbuckle, which is interesting. But the films were a huge success in America. 
Arbuckle finished filming the last short film of this contract on June 28th of 1933. And the Warner Brothers were so pleased with his return to film. I mean, I don't know if the per- Warner Brothers personally, but the company. Yakko, Wacko, and Dot? I don't... I There are literal Warner Brothers who started the company. I don't know at what time frame <laughs> that they were involved in it, but they, they were real people. Did they have any resemblance to the cartoon dogs? I don't know. Google will tell us. Warner Brothers. Real? I don't know how to Google this. No, there was four of them. Harry, Sam, yeah. Albert, and Jack. They were Polish. That's fun. I guess Warner wasn't their original name. No, they look like if Walt Disney was in the mob. All four of them. Um. <laughs> but yeah, the, the company was so pleased with his return to film and how well it was going, they offered him a contract for a feature film the following day on June 29th, 1933, um, which is a huge deal. That day, June 29th, also happened to be his first wedding anniversary with his new wife, who... Um, so him and his wife and all of his friends went on the town in New York City. They had a great night out in the city to celebrate both his anniversary and his successful return to film. He told his assembled friends at dinner that it was the happiest day in his life. Roscoe Arbuckle died that night in his sleep from a sudden heart attack at the age of 46. Fuck. Right on the eve of making a comeback. Happiest day in his life. That was the, the end of the tragic story of Roscoe Arbuckle. It... It started it started sad. It ended sad. There's a bit in the middle that was all right. That's kind of isn't that most of people's life story though. <laughs> well, I mean, whether or not it's a comedy or a tragedy really depends on when you cut when you when you when you wrap up. Yeah, it kind of does. But there has been a resurgence in the interest of his work uh, as there's been a resurgence in the interest of silent film, there's been a greater appreciation for the role that he played. Will we ever get a biopic of Roscoe Arbuckle? Uh, maybe. It depends on whether or not Hollywood can stop killing talented, fat comedians. <laughs> that's, yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing, is that everybody they've ever tied, this is why we did the story in the first place, Any anybody who's ever been tied to this project has died in sort of similar circumstances. Not that they were accused of murder, but that they were sort of haunted, haunted, and driven into early graves. Um, but but yeah, one of the one of the films was going to be directed by Rob Zombie, which is a very interesting. Um, <laughs> that is a choice. Yeah, one of the proposed Roscoe Arbuckle biopics was going to be directed by Rob Zombie. I'm sort of sad that that film doesn't exist. I think it would be interesting, right? I don't know that it would be good, but it would be interesting. It would be interesting, and that's good enough for me. <laughs> me too. Yeah, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. Um, I've been Jessica. And I have been Janelle. And this has been Histories and Mysteries. <laughs>